Brought to you by the all-new 2014 Toyota Corolla. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Lewis? Bryant. Yep. I thought you were going to call me Lewis. Yeah, I thought. Yeah. You know, like I thought about it. You like that chuckle do that dumb joke. <laughs> I want, I wondered if I was related to um, Mr. Clark. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I'm just going to say I am from now on. I feel like, have you heard of William Clark, the explorer? Lewis and Clark? Yeah. Well, I'm Josh Clark. Yeah, because Clark's an unusual name. You might be. It's, it's not... <laughs> no, but I mean, like, his family uh, was from the Ohio River Valley. I grew up in Toledo. Hey, there you go. I wonder. You have an explorer spirit. You're a laid back guy. Yeah. He was laid back. Yeah. Not like Lewis. He was semi-literate. <laughs> yeah. I'm fairly literate. Yeah. That's the big distinction. All it right. is funny. Like, have you read some of his verbatim journal entries? Who, Clark's or Lewis's? Well, both of them, but Clark's way worse. Uh, Yeah, Lewis is a pretty good writer, I thought. Yeah, but he had some weird spellings too. Clark was just like frontier Kentucky boy. Yeah, writing in a journal. Yeah, they were a good pair though. Yeah, and this isn't one of those podcasts where or stories where you look back and you're like, oh, you know, history's really pumped this up, and they were really kind of like this and like jerks and. No, no. They, this was really a great story, and they were actually true American heroes. <laughs> you know. Yeah. One semi tragic. I would say. Well, the ending is pretty tragic. No, but Lewis, Lewis is manic depressive. Yeah. By all accounts. Yeah. Back then they called it prone to, you know, prone to fits. <laughs> <laughs> but modern people say, no, he was probably manic depressive. Right. Uh, and I prepped by watching the four hour Ken Burns documentary last night. Four hours? Yeah, I thought it was two hours. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I got this. Yeah. And then I got to uh, the two-hour point, and I was like, wait a minute. They just hit the Continental Divide. I don't think I'm at the end. That's so funny because in the email you you emailed me to mm-hmm. suggest that I watch it, you called it a six-part, not four-hour. Well, they had it on YouTube in six parts, right. but in actuality, it's 12 parts. That's hilarious. <laughs> All right. So let's do this. This is one of my favorite stories in history. Is it really? Yeah, man. And again, I've said this before, why isn't this a movie? Like a really good movie, not the... Uh, have you seen Almost Heroes? Yeah, right. <laughs> there you go. No. All right, so Chuck, um, Lewis and Clark, Meriwether Lewis, William Clark. Yeah. Pair of um, army folk turned explorers, thanks to a little bit of, um, I guess, serendipity. It it would have been somebody else had it not been these guys, because really the sure. whole idea of this expedition, which was called the um, Corps of Discovery. Yes. It sounds like a soccer team. Um, it was it was the brainchild of Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. And the brainchild of TJ, because he's like, hey, I just bought I just doubled the size of our country right. by buying a bunch of land from Napoleon. Do you know the, the background on that? The Louisiana Purchase? Yeah. I know it's the greatest land deal in the history of the world, probably. Yeah. But what what do you mean? Well, it was the French's land, and they were about to get it from... They were about to get it, give it to the Spanish? Well, the Spanish were west of them, so probably. And the French, like, had barely any presence in this area, but yeah. it was their land. But the Spanish, had they taken over, they would have been a real problem because the Americans had access to the port of New Orleans because the French were basically absentee landlords there. Yeah. And so the idea that the Spaniards were about to get it, that was a big problem. So Jefferson sent some people over to France to try to negotiate something. Right. And it turned out Napoleon was having all sorts of problems, and it had been recommended to him by his people, like, just sell it to the Americans. They're coming over. They want to talk. So... I think James Monroe was sent by Thomas Jefferson with the a limit of $10 million to do something, to yeah. buy Florida and New Orleans or New Orleans for up to $10 million. Yeah. Monroe found out he could get all of the Louisiana territory, which went up to Canada. Yeah, Louisiana is really undersells it. It was... It went from the Rockies all the way over to the colonies. Yeah. And then up to Canada and down to the Gulf of Mexico. 
Yeah, it was a double the size of our country. Yeah. Overnight. He, so Monroe was like, uh, I'll give you $15 million for it. And the French were like, yeah. sold. So he, he bought 827,000 square miles of North America. Yeah, about three cents an acre. And, uh, that was a chunk of change though. I think that was double what our, uh, our gross economy was at the time. But it's a pretty good investment. That's a great investment. Yeah. Could you imagine though how weird that would be if, if it had gone a different way, the United States could have ended it about the Mississippi River, which it did at the time. Yeah. And just beyond that, on the other side, it could have been Spain. Right. Or not Spain, but you know what I mean. A Spanish colony. Well, it could have been a lot like um, Africa, you know, like yeah. all of these former colonies that are just like adjacent to one another. But this is a French colony. This is a Belgian colony. This is a British yeah. colony. And I think the Brits controlled Canada and like the Oregon Territory at the time. Yes. Um yeah, we were all sandwiched kind of in there together. Yeah, so we buy from the French, we go fight the Spanish for the rest of it, and uh, in between all of this, we send Lewis and Clark to go check out what had just been bought. And this expedition was going to happen anyway, but we thought that we were going to have to ask for permission to go through this area. Right. But now, all of a sudden, it was America. And that added a facet to this expedition that hadn't been there before, which was basically informing the Indians that they were now living in America, and they had um, a new great father, which yeah. is how Meriwether Lewis put it. How he uh, described TJ. Yeah, you have a new great father who lives in a lodge in Washington, D.C., and yeah. you can come visit him and see like how great it'll be to live under his patronage. But not really. <laughs> right. Sign this treaty. Uh, so... Uh, he named he was his private secretary lewis was his kind of personal aide and he knew what kind of dude he was maybe drank a little too much was prone to depression but he he sort of gave him this job to help him out he thought he'd be good for it don't get me wrong right he groomed him for the position but yeah he he thought it would be he had he had a vested interest in the man and he's like this this is going to be really good for lewis this is what he needs right he's 29 years old which is remarkable to me uh Good sharpshooter. He said, you pick your partner. He picked William Clark, who was his former uh, captain, I believe, in the Army, a couple of years older, and he looked up to Clark quite a bit. Right. He was like, I need you, brother, because you uh, compliment, you complete me. <laughs> right. Which, by the way, we should probably say there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that Lewis and Clark were ever gay. Clark definitely was wasn't. That, is that a rumor? Yeah, there's a lot of conjecture about Really? Meriwether Lewis was, he courted several women and was rejected by all of them. He was a total eligible bachelor, never married, never was engaged or betrothed or anything. So, of course... As time wore on, people were like, "Well, he must have been gay." I've and never heard been that. A, yeah, there's been a lot of um, a lot of conjecture, and they they've come up with the idea that he probably wasn't gay, but that he was um, bi. <laughs> no, <laughs> that he had um, something of an aversion to women that was not necessarily based on any kind of sexual orientation. Huh. He just didn't know what he was doing, and he didn't feel comfortable around women. Well, and like we said, he was. By all accounts, manic depressive. So he, he's kind of a messed up guy in a lot of ways. A little bit. All right. Semi-tragic figure, you said. Yeah, and we'll get to that. Um, the main goal, well, there are a couple of main goals. The main goal for Jefferson was, hey, I want to find this all-water route to the sea. That's really important for trade. Right. And also, hey, let's check out this thing we just bought. Right. And go out and record as much of it as you can. Animals, plants, people, uh what the heck is out there, basically? Come back and tell us. Right. And Lewis wasn't exactly a slouch when it came to this kind of stuff. His mother was a um, celebrated herb doctor um, in oh, Virginia. Yeah. yeah, she knew what she was doing. And um, she kind of raised him in the woods. So he was he was pretty good at botany. But to just kind of further his education and not just that, but all sorts of other things that would come in handy on the expedition, Jefferson sent him to the American Philosophical Association, which was the first learned society in North America. And basically he underwent this like grueling crash course of everything from astronomy to cartography to geology. Medical training. Everything. Everything you could, you would need. They basically just filled Lewis's head with. And he in turn filled Clark in on a lot of it too. Yeah. Also a lot of what they might encounter in ways of, uh, we'll call them Indians for the purposes of this show, because that's what they call them. Right. And Jefferson was like, and don't forget to call me the great father. It's awesome. <laughs> so um, 
Lewis is in Pittsburgh or in Philadelphia getting this training. He writes to Clark, says, please join me on this. And you were my captain. I'm a captain now. We're going to be co-captains on this. Yeah. Just so there's not any kind of weirdness or anything like that. Like I'm, I was chosen to lead the expedition, but I'm choosing you for help. But let's do this evenly, which is unheard of. Yeah. And it actually, even more unheard of, it worked out really well. Yeah, it did. Like there wasn't any kind of like backbiting or no. problems. And it, they actually ran it a bit like a democracy too. Yeah. In the end, um, the, they were kind of described as a family, like really, really tight knit. I, I kept waiting for the story to go off the rails. Right. But it didn't. They really hung together and stuck together yep. after some initial discipline problems. Once they kind of weeded out, I think from summer to fall, they kind of weeded out some of the, the bad apples. Well, what's funny, one guy got um, discharged for mutinous acts. Yeah. And another guy got discharged for desertion. But they they this happened in the middle of the, the first leg of the trip. So they had to stay on. <laughs> Until oh, really? they could get them to a place where they could go back. Huh. So they just had them doing hard labor the whole time. <laughs> wow. Uh, so um, they brought along a couple of people of note. Uh, one, Clark took his slave York that he had had since he was a kid. Yeah. He was only uh, only black guy and only slave on the uh, on the party. Right. On the adventure party, we'll call it. <laughs> he was um, he was technically a manservant. I guess like a valet or something like that to Clark outside of the expedition. But on the expedition, York was um, basically just a, a member of the party. Yeah, he was a member of the party. Um, he played a really great role in diplomacy because uh, the American Indian was had never seen uh, black people before. And they didn't have hangups, obviously, like white people did. So they're like, this guy is awesome. He's huge and he's strong and... Look at that, like, amazing black skin that's even darker than ours. Like, they really thought he was great. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm sure all the white people on the thing were like, well, yeah, you hey, know. Look at me. Look at what about me? Yeah. My pale white skin. I'm friends with the great father. But he played a great role in diplomacy. Um, and like you said, was generally treated pretty well. Um, although he did get sort of, sort of some of the crap duties. Well, plus he also got royally screwed over at the end of the expedition. Oh, yeah. We'll get to that, though. Okay. Uh, and so we have York with Clark, and then um, Lewis purchased a dog for $20 named Seaman. And they used to think it was Scannon because they, these guys' um, handwriting was so bad that for – Oh, really? A, a, yeah, basically a century, like everybody thought it was Scannon for oh, two Scannon. centuries. And then somebody figured out, well, wait a minute. Why is one of these rivers called Seaman's Creek? Right. And then they realized, wait. That's the dog. That's the dog. Everybody, by the way, had something named after them. And they had trouble coming up with names for everything. Like York, the York Islands of Montana, like everybody on that tour had something named after them, which is kind of neat. Yeah. Uh, so he was a Newfoundland dog, and he made it the whole way. We're happy to go ahead and spoil that one. Yeah. Which is great, because they ate dogs, by the way, at some point on this trip. They ate a lot of horse. Uh, yeah, they did. So, like you said, they started in Pittsburgh, but the official start... Uh, was really in St. Louis uh, in December of um, 1803. And they were like, all right, let's hit the river, the Missouri River. Well, that's where they assembled camp and wintered oh, that's right. St. Louis and they assembled started, all their people and ran them through like army training and yeah. took the best of the best. They officially started in May, the following spring. Of course, you wouldn't start in the winter. Right. Uh, so they had a big keelboat and a couple of smaller canoes and said, let's hit the river. And they did so. They said, let's do it. Because, again, ultimately, Jefferson was looking for a northwest passage across the continent to the Pacific, and he wanted to see if you could basically ride a river all the way across the country. Yeah. Uh, by the time, I think there were about 45 people at first, but when they eventually whittled it down, the official Corps of Discovery was 33 people. Right. So they, they head out, and they start going upstream up the Missouri River. And it was rough going at first. Yeah. and like they literally pulling their boat. Out from outside the water, waist deep by tow rope mm -hmm. against the current. Again, yeah, they're going upstream the whole way to the source of the Missouri River. Yeah. So the first Indians they encountered, uh, well, not the first, the first uh, situation they encountered were the Teton Sioux <laughs> or the Lakota. And they're actually warned by previous American Indians, like, watch out for these guys. They're basically the mafia of the Missouri River. Oh, yeah. Like, 
they'll demand payment. They won't. Uh, they'll take your goods. They'll control the trade. Yeah, they wanted them to trade exclusively with them. Yeah, and they had done this to the French and the Spanish for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, I think Lewis called them the pirates of the Missouri. But um, when they did reach them, it came to a standoff over a canoe that they, they gave them their gifts. The first thing they would do whenever they encountered a new tribe was to like give them these trinkets, tell them about the great father, mm-hmm. uh, give them like handkerchiefs and things like we come in peace. And um, with with the Teton Sioux, though, there was a standoff over a canoe that they wanted. And they were like, we're not giving you this canoe. And it literally came to a point where guns were raised and like hundreds of Indians had their arrows pointed at them. And it was about to go down. And uh, Chief Black uh, Buffalo intervened. I was like, you know what? Let our women and children tour your really cool boat that we've never seen and meet all you guys. And then y'all can have safe passage. So they managed to get through there unscathed. But that was their first like run in where they were like, man, this could go down pretty badly. Yeah. And luckily that was one of just a few. I think as far as cross-country uncharted expeditions. Yeah. Uncharted expeditions go, this went about as good as you could possibly hope for. Yeah, I mean, it was super peaceful. Um, They were the core of discoveries rather than the core (laughs) of bloodshed or something. Well, they only shot one bullet in anger the entire trip. Is that right? It's pretty remarkable. Man, that is neat. Uh, So they hit the Great Plains, and that might as well have been Mars to them. Um, If you think about it, if you'd never been west of, I think there's a saying that a squirrel can jump from tree to tree until it hits the Mississippi. Oh, yeah. And so when they hit the Great Plains, they had never seen anything like it. Like there were no trees. It's just plains. It's just plains. And it was just, you know, they were absolutely blown away by this. And uh, there they encountered the Mandan and Minotauri or Hidatsa Indians. Right. And they decided, all right, this is a pretty good place to build a camp, stay here for a few months. And they built Fort Mandan, which they named after the local, uh, one of the local tribes. And, um, and they were buddies. They had like lived together in harmony. Right. They got they they forged friendships. They were visited by locals, and uh, something big happened here, which we'll get into in a second. But first, let's do a message break. Okay, Chuck. So we're at Fort Mandan. Yeah. Which is where in South Dakota, I think. Yes, yeah, in Modern the Dakotas. They were having a good time, hanging out, having lots of sex with. The local ladies. Yeah, there was a big problem with uh, venereal disease on yeah. the expedition because, like, they were having a lot of sex with Indians, and sure. the Indians um, had syphilis, which was something that was unknown to Europeans. Yeah, and uh, Europeans contracted it very easily, so that was a big thing. Well, that was another thing about Lewis too. Apparently, like everybody else on the expedition, oh, was he not? had sex with Indian women, and he was like, he he stayed away from it. His Journal entries about like Indian sexual practices were very like snide. I think is a way one person put it. Um, yeah, it's just he was an odd duck. I get. What if he tried to put on though that he was just you know cleaning up, and they're like, Lewis, it doesn't hurt when he pees. Like something's going on. <laughs> right. it, it doesn't burn. <laughs> I don't think he's having sex. He's an outlaw. No, he says he had sex with all those women. Right. Yeah. Uh, burns when I pee. Is it burn when you pee? Right. Doesn't burn when Lewis pees. <laughs> yeah. So apparently burning when you pee like was a big thing on sure. on this that core of discoveries discovered syphilis too. Uh all right. So the other important thing that happened here, which is I think what you were getting to, was they hired a French Canadian uh trapper named Toussaint Charbonneau, but they really what they were doing was hiring his wife. Yeah, Sakagawea. Sakagawe or Sakagawea. I didn't mispronounce it. You didn't mispronounce it. There's a lot of pronunciations. Yeah, but there's only one that's right. And the right one is based on the journal entries of Lewis, Clark, everybody else on the expedition. Because this was an expedition. Everyone was expected to, like, make notes and, and yeah, they were all write journaling. stuff down. Right. Yeah. And Sakagawea is mentioned dozens of times in these journals because she did do some outstanding stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, and she's mentioned phonetically. So it's Sakagawea. Yeah. Also, at some point, it's also mentioned that her name is Shoshone for bird woman. Yeah. And in Shoshone, Sakaga is bird and Wea is woman. So it's Sakagawea, not Sakajawea. That's right. Well, I mean, that's a big point. It's true. Although in the Ken Burns thing, these historians all pronounced it differently. Yeah. Which is sort of frustrating. Well, yeah, there's Sakakaweka. 
Yeah. And then Sacagawea. Yeah, one of the ladies called her straight up Sacagawea. I was like, How straight you? up Sacagawea? Straight up. So, uh, she was very important because A, she was, uh, a translator. B, she was essentially a white flag everywhere they went. Yeah. Um, and I don't think we said this, but by the time they broke camp to leave, she had a baby. Yeah, she actually gave birth to her first child um, in Fort Mandon. Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau. Yeah, who's pretty cool, grew up to be pretty cool. Yeah. For sure. But Sacagawea, if we say Sacagawea too, I think that's fair. Okay. <laughs> she um, she was 16 at the time, and she was married to Charbonneau. She yeah. was one of two of his wives. Um, and I didn't hear anything about the other um, I didn't either. Shoshone woman. Did she not go along? Or I something? don't think so. Okay, all right. So um, she, Jean-Baptiste, and Toussaint were a family, even though Sacagawea was Toussaint's slave wife. Like, he purchased her. Yeah, yeah. But she was Shoshone, and the reason why she was so valuable is because the expedition leaders had found out that the Shoshone were known for their horsing abilities. Yeah. And for the expedition around. had two horses yeah. that they set out with, and we're like, we're going to need a lot more. Sure, at so some point. we need to trade with the Shoshone when we make it to the Rockies, and we will need this woman. And she comes in handy to a spectacular degree in this sense. Yeah, and not only was she a white flag, she was just great for the spirit of the camp to have a woman there. Yeah, uh, and the baby was a, a charmer too. Oh, of course. You know, you can't pull up with a woman and a baby and say, like, we're warring people. Exactly. You know? Apparently, across all tribes along the plains, if you have a woman and a baby in your party, you're automatically not a war party, and therefore you come in peace. Yeah, and she was also pretty awesome. Uh, Charbonneau himself was described as quite average. Yeah. But Sacagaway was the real deal. Like, one of the bravest members of the expedition, and at one point, one of the boats overturned, and they lost, were losing a lot of their important records and things mm -hmm. and she was the main one that was like boom in the water right. retrieving this stuff yeah while charbonneau was i don't know what he was doing oh who knows what charbonneau <laughs> was doing but sakagawea was swimming retrieving the stuff this is after she'd given birth this is while she's breastfeeding walking scores of miles in, in any given week she's pretty tough yeah and you know we'll go ahead and spoil this that baby like we said lived it made it all the way there and back mm -hmm. this brand new baby uh Till the age of about, I guess, two and a half. And he just stole William Clark's heart. Yeah, he loved him. He um, ended up adopting him. He did. Yeah. He adopted him and educated him in St. Louis. Yeah, after she died. Yeah. He adopted both her kids. Yeah. Much later. So, um, but yeah, his name was Jean-Baptiste the, the baby, and he was nicknamed Pompey because of his pompous little dancing antics. Right. Clark found him <laughs> to be quite the little dancer. Um, so... The the other way that Sacagawea was um, helpful to this expedition was that she was a translator. She could speak um, Shoshone, obviously. Yeah. Um, she could also speak uh, Hidata. Mm -hmm. And so her husband could speak Hidata. So if she was speaking to a Shoshone, let's say they encountered a Shoshone person. Yeah. The Shoshone would speak to Sacagawea. Yeah. She would say what they said in Hidata to her husband. Yeah. Her husband would say in French what had just been said yeah. in Hidata yeah. to another man who would in turn tell William and uh, Meriwether what had been said in English. Yeah. That was the translation line. Yeah. And Sacagawea was the pivotal point of this as far as speaking to um, Plains tribes went. Yeah, and you would think that's setting it up to say, and like big problems arose because of it, but it really worked pretty well. No, because they were also trained in plain sign language, too. Apparently, there was a lot of um, gesturing that was fairly universal that a lot of the people who were recruited in St. Louis originally were familiar with, too. Yeah. So they got along pretty well. They did. Okay. Uh, all right, so after the Mandan villages, they broke uh, camp and went on um, to the confluence of the Yellowstone with the Missouri. And entered a land where they started seeing, like, when they hit the plains, they started seeing these crazy animals they'd never seen before. Uh, it's important to say they didn't discover anything. <laughs> yeah, it's very important to say that. They were just the first white guys to record it for science. Yeah. Um, but prairie dogs and elk and buffalo by the tens of thousands, uh, antelope, all kinds of things to them that were just these weird animals. Um, they actually sent a live prairie dog back to Jefferson. 
which is pretty neat. <laughs> it's hilarious. And it made it all the way. Uh, grizzly bears, they encountered those for the first time on this expedition? Yeah, they were warned of the grizzly by the uh, Indians, and they were like, we, we've hunted brown bear and black bear. Right. We, we, we know we're talking about bear. <laughs> and then they were kind of like, holy crap. Like, yeah. In their journals, they were like, I've never seen anything like this. It took 10 shots, and we almost died. And yeah. the grizzly bear is to be reckoned with. Lewis said something like, um, I'd rather fight two Indians than one grizzly bear. Yeah. <laughs> so here we are in early June. Uh, they reached the point where the Missouri divided that they didn't, they weren't told about this, uh, fork. So they're like, huh. Right. What should we do here? It went in equal parts, north and south. Yeah. I mean, it was like a, a hardcore left and right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hardcore. It was, uh, basically everyone in the party agreed on one direction except Lewis and Clark. They were like, we are, we're old school. We like InSync. Yeah. <laughs> so they, uh, despite the fact that everyone disagreed, they followed them. And that just shows like how united they were. They were like, you know what? We don't think you guys are right, but we're going to follow you because you are our captains. Right. And we want to see your faces when you realize you're wrong. <laughs> Which actually would happen. But it wouldn't lead to like eating each other like the Donner Party. No. Huh. Um, so they, they keep moseying along and they're doing pretty well. They, Apparently, they got to a point where um, Clark looked down one day. I think it was Clark. It was possibly Lewis, too. It was Lewis. And he realized that a little stream at his feet was running west. And he realized that they just crossed the Continental Divide. Yeah, that was the mouth of the Missouri that they were literally straddling with yeah. their feet. Yeah, and they uh, that meant that now they had just left the Missouri and were going to hook up. First, they went on to the Snake River. But that would take them to the Columbia River, which, by their reckoning, would take them to the Pacific Ocean. So they'd made it like a substantial amount of, of distance. Yeah, that was a depressing moment, though, for Lewis, because he he thought when he reached that ridge that he would look and see just downhill to the ocean. Yeah. And what he saw was Rocky Mountains. Nevada. Yeah, and he was like, oh, man, this is not going to be very easy. No. We didn't know about the Rocky Mountains. No, and even uh, even still, when they finally do think that they see the ocean, they still were 25 miles away from it when they finally get to that point. Yeah, which we'll get to. Oh, sorry. That's all right. <laughs> uh, so what they ended up doing, they made a mistake because there was a, a, a shortcut they could have taken. Oh, really? That would have taken four days, and instead they had to go work their way around the Great Falls of Montana, which took uh, 53 days of portage. Ah, uneasy portage. Yeah, because this portage was like carrying these boats. Yeah. But also these guys were wearing like moccasins and stuff and they had a huge problem with prickly pear. Yeah. Which would just go right through your moccasin. And it's basically like stepping on nails the whole time while you're carrying a, a very heavy boat. Yeah. And all your supplies. Right. Whiskey and, you know, food. Yeah. Salt. Uh, so on July 25th, they arrived at another fork, uh, three forks. They named them the Gallatin for the Secretary of Treasury, the Madison for the Secretary of State, and the Jefferson, and decided to follow the Jefferson because uh, – There was more to it, I think. Yeah, and I think they were like, this is the one that is going to head west. Right. So they follow that. I think at this point or either right before or right after, they they um, meet up with the Shoshone. Have they met the Shoshone yet? Uh, well, at this point, Lewis went off by himself. Um, and a couple of more people to find the Shoshone. Including Sacagawea, right? Or no, she wasn't there yet. I don't think she was there yet. Okay. But uh, he did find them. And um, he basically said, hey, we come in peace. We have a camp back here. Yeah. We want you to come hang out at. Well, they were in bad shape, apparently, the Shoshone were. Oh, they were? Yeah, they were pretty worse for the wear and very docile as a result. Um, so he met these women and children and, and told them all that stuff. And they came back and hung out with them. And at camp, Sacagawea recognized one of the women. Yeah. That uh, Clark was it Clark or Lewis? Uh, I think at this point it was both. Who th- who they came back with and said, "Hey, we found some Shoshone." And she said, "Hey, that's actually my BFF from first grade." Yeah. Because remember, Sacagawea had been um, kidnapped and sold. Yeah. So there were still members of her tribe living around the Rockies, and um, she actually met up with them. And with her brother, who was now chief. Yes. She was like, you're chief? And he went, you know it, little sister. Yep. And he went, you're married to a French trapper? She's like, that guy? Not really. He yep. bought me. <laughs> uh, which is not funny at all. <laughs> you know? 
Um, so then they proceeded across the Continental Divide to the main village with the Shoshones and uh, hired on a tour guide, Old Toby, which is a great name yeah. for an Indian tour guide. Sure. And said, Toby said, you know, I'll lead you through these mountains. But we're going to need some horses to eat because it's going to be rough. <laughs> and to travel with. Right. But this is where they were really eating a lot of horse meat. Yeah, the Bitterroot Mountains. It was pretty rough through Montana and Idaho. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was when, you know, their spirits were never broken, but that's when they were dampened for sure. So um, when they make it through the Bitterroot, I don't remember why they did or where, but there was a point where they said, we can't use these horses anymore. I guess it's when they got onto the Columbia River, right? Well, maybe. Is this where they were eating salmon and the salmon was making them sick? Yeah, so they come to a Nez Pierce village with old Toby, I believe, at, at the lead. Yeah. And um, they're celebrated, welcomed, they throw a feast for him, and it makes everybody violently ill in the expedition. Yeah, they're like, this salmon is awful. Yeah. <laughs> or these roots or whatever. I'll bet it was the roots that got them. Yeah, I think it was. Um, so I, every, apparently everyone recovered. Um, but they say, okay, well, here's the Columbia River. We can't really use these horses anymore. Uh, I think one of the things that's very much overlooked in the history of this expedition is just how much the Corps of Discovery relied on friendly tribes. So like when they hit the Columbia River, they said, hey, Shoshone, or no, Nez Pierce friends, yeah, will you watch our horses for us? And the Nez Pierce said, yes. Yeah. You guys go to the Pacific Ocean. When you come back, we'll have your horses. Go ahead and brand them so you know which ones are yours. And they did. Yeah. They left their horses with the Nez Pierce. Yeah, I mean, it was it was kind of a best-case scenario story for most of the trip. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, and that is actually, too, where they were, uh, where they traded for dog to eat, which was one of the only disappointing parts of the story for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, that and what happened to York. All right, so at this point, it's uh, mid-October. Yeah. They floated down to uh, the Great Falls of the Columbia, which is now... Salilo Falls. And think about how much easier it was at this point. Like, they're not going upstream any longer. They get yeah. to go with the current. True, but it was the Oregon Territory, so they were getting rained on constantly. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was pretty brutal conditions. Um, but you're right. It wasn't like slugging through in the summertime. Right. Pulling that boat upstream. Stepping on prickly pear. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so this is where, on November 7th, they thought that they saw the ocean... Uh, it's actually a bay about 25 miles inland. And one of them said, ocean in view, O-C-I-N. I love the ocean, O-T-E-A-N. <laughs> in this, this same paragraph, they misspelled ocean t- two different ways. Give them a break. Come on. Uh, finally, 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 by mid-November, they strode upon the sands of the Pacific. And this is the really sad part is that Merriweather called it tempestuous and horrible. Like he wasn't like, "Oh, we made it." He was, he was depressed, and he was like, "This isn't like the Atlantic Ocean. This is rocky and beating us with waves. Like the Oregon coast is rough." Yeah, uh, and he didn't cotton to it. Um, <laughs> but what he did cotton to was being an accurate dude. Uh-huh. By dead reckoning, over the course of over forty-one hundred miles, he was only off by forty miles. Wow! In charting this this ride, that is pretty amazing. It's pretty remarkable. So uh, Sakagawea, um, one of the reasons she signed on, aside from being a slave of, to her husband who signed her on, yeah. um, was that she wanted to see the Pacific. She'd heard about the Great Waters. Oh, yeah? And yeah. And so when they were getting closer, um, she petitioned Lewis and Clark saying like, there's no way you can't let me not come with you to see the Pacific Ocean itself. Right. And they let her come along. They had word from some local tribe, I'm not sure which one it was, that there was a monstrous fish on the beach. And Lewis and Clark were like, I bet they're talking about a whale. We should go get some blubber. And yeah. Sakagawe is like, I'm there. I'm coming with you. <laughs> so they took her along, and they all got to go see the uh, Pacific Ocean. And it was close a whale. And personal that first time. Yeah, they got a bunch of blubber and yeah. oil and stuff from it. Um, and it died first. So you can keep liking Lewis and Clark. <laughs> um, so... Uh, they camped there on the Pacific for a full four months. Yeah, basically they were trying to – two things. They were trying to decide what to do, and they were – technically they were waiting for a boat to come by. Cause they had a letter of credit from Jefferson that said, right. hey, if you're a boat, give these people a ride back. 
and we'll pay you like good money. Right. I read that they never seriously thought that they were going to take a boat back. Well, that was the deal is technically they were supposed to be waiting for a boat. What they were really doing was just sort of weighing their options as to how best to go back and right. win. And this is the really cool part. They put it to a vote. They did put it to a vote. Um, and it was a vote that included an African-American and a woman yep. and a Native American. Yeah. And it was a who Sacagawea and York, both had, both their votes were given equal weight to everybody else's. Yeah, it was very on cool. Where to camp, set up camp for the winter. Yeah, so they uh, elected to cross the river to the south um, where they were informed that there was elk and deer. You can hole up here. You can hunt all winter. And they did. And prepare yourself for the return journey home, which we'll get to after this message break. Stuff you should know. All right. So here we are at Fort Clatsop, That's Oregon. Oregon, yeah. Named after the Clatsop tribe. They were hunting. They were storing up. They were getting their provisions in order. Getting ready to go back. And they hauled butt on the way back. Uh, they did. Yeah. You know how it is. Sure. <laughs> it, plus, it doesn't take as long because now you know how long it's going to take. Yeah, and they weren't stopping to record everything. They did actually They're split like, up. like, dogs, we've already seen it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Been there. Um, but the group wasn't as happy. Uh, they were irritable, especially Lewis. He kind of fell into a depression on the way home. He didn't – did he come out of it at all? While they were at the Pacific, or did it just stick the whole time? Well, I mean, I think it was up and down. Basically, they believe when he was not recording in his journal, he was depressed. Oh, okay. Um, but he is remarkable in that he soldiered on. Like, this is a manic depressive who was still, like, getting up every day and doing this. Right. And, like, the worst thing he did was not journal. Right. You know? Um, actually, the worst thing he did was, on the way back, he stole a canoe at one point, which is really out of character. And he was described as kind of, like, cracking at the seams at this point, huh. which is really sad. So uh, on March 23rd, 1806, they started back up the Columbia with these new canoes, uh, bartered for some horses, and camped with the Nez Pierce for a month. And No, then... they got their horses back from the Nez Pierce. Those horses, that those were theirs, the ones they branded. Well, no, this is before the they Nez got Pierce. back there oh, okay. to the Nez Pierce. They bartered for some horses and then eventually hooked back with the Nez Pierce and camped for like a month. And got their horses back. And got their horses back. I think that's your favorite part of the story. I think it's cool. They're it like, is. hey, guys, will you hang on to this for? They also sunk their canoes at a certain point and I then that was neat. went back and got those. Yeah, to keep keep the canoes from being sent down river, they just sunk them. Yeah. And then they came back and got them. That's pretty cool. So they basically retraced their trail through the bitter roots. Um only one retrograde march on the entire journey, which means you have to double back, basically, yeah. which is in itself pretty remarkable. Uh, and then on July 3rd, 1806, they separated um, back where they were at that original shortcut that they should have taken and said, hey, let's send off some different factions here and do a little bit more exploring right. and a little bit more recording of things. They're and like, so, we, we've slacked off. Yeah. Well, yeah, because they were kind of, like I said, they were hauling butt on the way home. Yeah. Um, this is where Lewis, uh, where they ran into their first kind of violent episode with the Blackfeet Indians. And, um, a dude shot at Lewis. He shot back, hit the guy in the belly. Another guy stabbed the Blackfeet Indian. Or is it a Blackfoot Indian? I think Blackfoot. Okay. And, um, they rode away like the, the Blackfeet did, but two of them died. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, it was sad. They had gone all that way without violence and they finally kind of had to. Yeah. Their hand was forced, essentially. Uh, Chuck, also, um, there was another shooting that took place during this period, but this one was accidental. Oh, yeah. Um, Lewis was actually shot when he was mistaken for an elk yeah. while he was out hunting with a member of the expedition, Pierre Cruzet. And uh, Cruzet um, didn't fess up to it immediately. He he was like, oh, I guess me. Some, some Indians. <laughs> it must have been those Blackfeet. Yeah. And uh, finally, when they searched the area and found no sign of Blackfeet, Cruzat was like, I'm sorry. Yeah. I thought you were an elk. I'm blind in one eye. Don't forget. Yeah, but I'm the fiddle player. And everybody loves me. Yeah, exactly. And Lewis was like, we'll just let it go. And apparently was really in a lot of pain. It hit him in I'm the sure. thigh. And like he had a very long and difficult recovery for the rest of the time. But it was about this time when everybody came back together. 
Yeah, and this, you know, we're sort of simplifying this part of the story, but they eventually did all meet back up um, pretty remarkably. Like, I think the story is one of them rounded a bend, and right as they did that, the others were rounding the bend, and they were like, oh, hey, it's you. <laughs> they're like, it's you. Out here in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so they eventually went back to the Mandan villages. That is where the Charbonneau family um, left the expedition. Um, and that is where Private John Coulter, who was one of the men, said, you know what, uh, St. Louis, like, I didn't like it there. I really like it out here. Can I can I go back? And they're like, sure, man. Go go west, young man. <laughs> exactly. And he did so. He did. He he was going to um, work with some French trappers. Yeah. And they had a falling out pretty quickly after. And then this guy, Coulter, yeah. he went off on his own, and they think he's the first white person to enter what's now Yellowstone Park. And he was, oh, wow. he was the first to recount the geysers. And even um, still, there's part of it called Coulter's Hell. Oh, cool. The geyser area of Yellowstone. Very cool. Uh, so reportedly, the only thing they did not run out of on the way home was powder, lead, paper, and ink. Wow. Or at least that's what Ken Burns says. You know how they put a little cherry on top of everything. <laughs> right. Uh, finally, in September uh, of 1806, on the 23rd, they arrived victorious in St. Louis and... The river was lined with people cheering for them, shooting their guns in the air. And, like, we should point out, everyone thought they were dead. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I mean, for a long time, like, they were sending messages back in prairie dogs. But then at a certain point, that just wasn't possible. Right. So even Jefferson had given up hope. They'd been like, they've been gone for two and a half years. Yeah. Like, we're not going to hear from Lewis and Clark again. And then they did. And then they did. And um, covered about 8,000 miles over two years, four months, and nine days. Discovered. I'm sorry. Not discovered. Saw. Recorded 122 animals that they had never seen, 178 plants that they had never seen, and did a pretty darn good job of cartographing. <laughs> right. Cartographing? Is that even a word? Yeah, I think it is. Drawing maps. <laughs> um, that was great. Describing the Rocky Mountains, and Jefferson was like, Rocky Mountains? Well, what, I have mountains now? What are those? And they were like, they're snow-capped, even in the summer. And they were, you know, they had never seen any of this. They were blown away. So um, after this, uh, Clark sets up shop in St. Louis. Yeah, they doubled everyone's pay, which was nice, and we, gave everyone a bunch of land. Right. You, they, you got, I think, 320 acres. Yeah, and, Lewis um, and Clark got 1,600 each, but right. the rest of the guys got like 320. Almost the rest. Two, uh. <laughs> two people did not get any land or any money, and that was Sacagawea and York. Yeah. Um, which sucks. Yeah, and apparently York had a difficult reentry into slavery. I can imagine so. Could you think about like, <laughs> like yeah. living like that and then going back to being a slave. Yeah, and so he asked um, Clark for his freedom. He was like, I know I don't get land and all this stuff, but how about my freedom? And Clark was like, no. <laughs> and not only that, he wrote his brother a letter and said, you know, York is being kind of uppity since he got back. He's not, he's not being a good slave and he's having trouble. And uh, so I had to beat him. <laughs> no. Yeah, that was, that was the one time where I was like, oh, man. Yeah, that's pretty awful. This was like really headed in the good direction. And all that had to happen was he could have just said, yes, yes you are free. And then it would have been the best story ever. Man, that's that's really awful. I had no idea about that. Yeah. And then there were there were various accounts that he might have been freed a few years later or perhaps escaped. No one is quite for sure, even though I've noticed Ken Burns does a lot of factual stating of things that are disputed. Oh, yeah. Like he just said straight up that he was uh, freed five years later. And I read up on it and people were like, oh, maybe not. Huh. Ken so. Burns just does whatever his haircut tells him to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a sucker for those things, though. I mean, I know a lot of documentary filmmakers kind of poo-poo him. Oh, but yeah. Well, I mean, I like he it. takes a certain interpretation and that's that. Exactly. Like you said. Uh, so wow. Lewis. Wait, hold on. I'm really disappointed in Clark. I know. That stinks. What do you want me to do? I don't know. It is very sad. I guess though. talk about Lewis, yeah. I mean, Clark went on, we should say, to have like a very successful rest of his career. Well, hold on. You want a bright side? Okay. Bill Clinton in 2001 uh, gave a posthumous um, rank as sergeant in the Army to York. Oh, great. So that's kind of nice. And um, Way to go, Clinton. Today there are some statues commemorating York, one in Louisville, mm -hmm. Kentucky. Uh, I think there's... One at Lewis and Clark College, 
in Portland in Kansas City. There's one. Nice. So he's he's definitely been smiled upon historically as like a great man and adventurer. Great. By everyone but William Clark. <laughs> yeah, and his family. Who was like, no. <laughs> so Lewis had some difficulties upon returning home. He was made governor, appointed governor of the upper Louisiana territory. And things started out well, but then he kind of got into financial trouble. Uh, I think his territory got into financial trouble, right? Yeah. And, and he, he wasn't was going to Washington. He wasn't able to complete. The big thing was that he wasn't able to complete what he was supposed to do, which is come back and write about the whole thing. Yeah. Those weren't published until 1814, which yeah. is uh, eight years after they returned. And even then they were published after his death. Yeah. So, so he was, he was by all accounts, pretty depressed. He was on his way to Washington, supposedly to, to plead for more money for the territory. Yeah. To kind of. He had been called out on some finances, and he wanted to go clear that up. And supposedly he had some some of his uh, journals that he wanted to turn in. Oh, gotcha. It's like, here, I've got this. Right. And he fell out of favor a little bit with Jefferson because of all that, which is, you know, kind of stinks. It, did, it is because he was groomed by Jefferson. It was a family friend. Yeah. Like, they were friends. So um, Lewis, I guess, is on his way to Washington. He's following the Natchez Trail, Natchez Trace. Yeah. And uh, he stops in Tennessee. At a place called the Grinders Inn. Yeah, near Nashville. And that's where he died. He was he was found, well, apparently crawling toward the innkeeper's wife, shot, bleeding, asking for water. And she just, like, screamed and ran away. Yeah, and this is another disputed thing. Was he killed or did he commit suicide? Uh, if you Google death of Meriwether Lewis, it comes up suicide, but it is definitely in dispute. Yeah, and Ken Burns straight up said he killed himself, and it was very sad. Well, the reason why it's in dispute is because he was shot in the abdomen and in the head. Yeah, he was the- also an expert <laughs> marksman. Yeah, and the suicide people, I think, reckon that back then with guns, like if you really wanted to do it, you would point one at your chest and one at your head and squeeze at the same time. Oh, really? Yeah, like I hadn't boom. heard that. Yeah. Um, but, but other I mean, people like- said he was murdered for money and what were you going to say? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> Uh, sadly, even though this story had a happy ending, it was sort of the beginning of the end of the American Indian. Yeah. Um, that's a pretty big thing to point out. Yeah. There was a great quote from one of the people in the documentary. It said they left as students, came back as teachers. And sadly, America failed to learn the lessons that they had brought back with them because if everything had gone the way of Lewis and Clark, it would have been awesome. They were basically like, Hey, got the great father. Like we said, we're going to live in harmony and, they believed him, and they believed themselves. You know, they weren't like pulling one over on him. Yeah, uh, and it's just sad that it went down a different way from that point forward. Basically, yeah, you know what I'm saying. There was one brief moment when it could have gone a different way. Yeah, and that was it. Yeah, but Clark and Lewis also, I guess, kind of paved the way for the idea of manifest destiny. True, although that wasn't coined until about 40 years after the expedition. They are always held up as this idea, and this is an idea that people subscribe to for a very long time, Yeah, that America was destined to take up the area between the Pacific and the Atlantic. It was our destiny, Yeah, and therefore anything that stood in our way should just fall before us as we swept outward toward the Pacific Ocean. The end justifies the means. And Lewis and Clark was like, look, they're, they're an example of that. Yeah. Uh, Clark eventually died of natural causes in 1838. Most of the rest of the party sort of just faded into history. Um, uh, Jean Baptiste. Well, yeah, he didn't. He became like a, like a, a courtes not a courtesan, that'd be a lady, a courtier, right? In One Europe? of the two, yeah. Uh, he went to Ger- Europe. And he was friends with a German prince. Oh, a German prince. Prince Wilhelm. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, I think the oldest survivor lived to be. 99, lived all the way to the Civil War. Oh, yeah. And at the age of 90, volunteered to fight for the Union. <laughs> and I don't know if they took him up on it or if they were just like, we get it, you're a legend, but right. we're, we got this. Yeah. So who knows? So that's the Lewis and Clark expedition, the Corps of Discoveries. The dog lived. The baby lived. Yeah, the dog made it all the way. They only lost one person on the entire trip, Charles Floyd, and he died early on of what they believe was probably appendicitis. Yep, burst appendix. And... uh Pretty amazing. Yeah. They didn't have to eat each other. No. They didn't even eat the guy who died of the burst appendix. No, just dog and horse. Yep. 
Uh, if you, you got anything else? Nope. If you want to learn more about Chuck's favorite story from American history, you can type in Lewis and Clark in the search bar at How Stuff Works. And since I said search bar, it means it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this uh, diplomatic immunity. Hey, guys, last week the Dutch police arrested the Russian diplomat Dmitry Borodin in his home. They were called in by concerned neighbors because the diplomat was drunk, hitting his kids, dragging them by their hair through the house. The police arrived as uh, and was witness to the brutality against the children and also established that Mr. Borodin was extremely drunk. They had no choice but to arrest him to protect the children from further abuse. Immediately, the Russian government came into action and Putin, the devil incarnate, if you ask me, <laughs> this is from Jasper, demanded his release and apologies from the Netherlands. Uh, that same afternoon, I started listening to the latest stuff you should know. Lo and behold, it was about diplomatic immunity. As the podcast drew to a close, I received a news update on my phone that the Dutch government had apologized to the Russians for the arrest because it violated the Treaty of Vienna. Immunity won out again. Uh, since then, UNICEF has issued a statement that the well-being of the children should be more important than diplomatic immunity. Maybe something will finally change? Probably not. Personally, I hope we declare uh, Borodin persona non grata, but that seems unlikely. Anyway, wanted to share this actuality of your podcast with you. Uh, it's pretty weird that it happened when it did, and luckily it wasn't about floods or earthquakes. And that is from Jasper in Amsterdam, one of my favorite cities. Nice. Thanks a lot, Jasper. That's yeah. pretty interesting. I love it when things happen like simpatico like that. Yeah, confluence. Yeah. Um, well, if you have a, a confluence email you want to send us, you can send us an email to stuffpodcast.discovery.com. You can also hit us up on Facebook. We have a page at facebook.com slash stuff you should know. We have a Twitter handle. We're verified now. It's pretty awesome. Uh, that's SYSK Podcast. And you can join us at our good old home on the web. It's called StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Brought to you by the all-new 2014 Toyota Corolla.